Welcome to the Irish Pharmacy Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Total Health and Haven Pharmacies. There are 127 of our independently owned pharmacies located all over Ireland so that we can bring trusted local care to you in your community. And now on the go with this podcast. My name is Sheena Mitchell. I'm a pharmacist from Milltown Total Health Pharmacy. In each episode, I'll be chatting with one of my pharmacist colleagues from the Total Health and Haven Pharmacies, where they will blow your mind with all of the amazing information that they have. We aim to bring you reliable and useful health information that you can listen to conveniently at a time that suits you. I'm joined by Porrick Murphy from Haven Pharmacy Murphy's in Clonard, County Wexford. And we are going to be talking about the very important subject of sleep. When I say Porrick is knowledgeable about sleep, I mean, he is an absolute wizarding genius when it comes to sleep. I couldn't believe how much in-depth information he knew. And he really, really helped me to understand all of the factors that we need to consider about sleep. And as he says himself at the end, that we then need to forget about. We talk about sleep expectations and how much sleep we actually need. We discuss insomnia and its causes and any dangers that are associated with a lack of sleep. We also talk a little bit about sleep quality and whether or not this deteriorates with age. Horik gives loads of advice on natural ways to support a high quality restorative sleep. And we do discuss the use of sleeping tablets and whether or not naps are a good or bad idea. All in all, this is a really, really informative podcast. And I was so glad to be joined by Porik today. Enjoy. Today I am joined by Porrick Murphy from Haven Pharmacy Murphy's in Clenard in County Wexford. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today, Porrick. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me, Sheen. I'm delighted to be here and to have an opportunity to talk about one of my favourite topics. I know. And before we dive into the very complicated world and a very important topic of insomnia, can you tell me a little bit about your pharmacy and your community? I live and work in Wexford Town in an area called Clanard, which is just outside the centre. I opened the Clanard Pharmacy in 2006 and then about 10 years ago, I moved it into Haven Pharmacy Murphy's as part of the co-op. And I'm delighted to be back working as integral part of the community and to have an opportunity to try and empower people to improve their health through an extra little bit of knowledge is how I like to think of it. As community pharmacies, we're definitely well placed to do that. So today you are talking to me all about sleep. So obviously everyone knows that sleep is something that happens at the end of the day. It either comes easily or it doesn't. But what would you say being I'm going to, I think it's fair to call you after our previous conversations, a sleep expert. (laughs) I know you won't like that title, but you're definitely seriously educated on the topic. And that's why I'm so delighted to discuss it with you today. So what is sleep and the importance of it? It's such a primordial instinct and, and yet it's a mystery. I suppose from a dictionary definition is very much like a condition of the body that typically occurs for several hours at night in which the eyes are closed, our muscles are relaxed and the activity of the brain is altered depending on the phase and consciousness of the surroundings is, is reduced. That makes it sound very complex. It's basically the absence of wakefulness is a better way of putting it, I think. Um, and can you have the absence of wakefulness without having quality sleep? I suppose this is the problem. Absolutely. And I think like a lot of things, we tend to have unrealistic expectations about what our sleep should be. Most people can easily recall their teenage years when they would sleep flat out without any problems for as long as they like to go to sleep without any delay. 
the stresses and strains of modern life happen. I mean, everyone is going to experience times in their life where they don't sleep very well. And how we react to that is really important. This thing about expectations, is there a norm or does it differ from person to person? Yeah, on average, people need between seven and eight hours sleep. Having said that, everybody is individual. There's obviously some instances in history where people like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan boasted how they could survive on little or no sleep. And I think it's no coincidence that both of those people died from Alzheimer's. We'll get to that later on, but it's good not to focus on it too much. It's like giving yourself the sleep opportunity. So sleep opportunity is basically the amount of time you're spending in bed, giving yourself the opportunity to sleep. We'll get around to giving a few tips on how you might improve the efficiency of your sleep. We speak about insomnia and a lot of people may feel they have insomnia, but maybe don't because of unrealistic sleep expectations. I probably fall into that category sometimes. But in terms of time taken to fall asleep or waking a lot during the night, like what is insomnia? You know, when is it just a few bad nights and when does it become an actual problem? The way people would define it is about 19% say they wake up early, about 19% say they have trouble falling asleep, but 25% need a daytime nap to survive. And about 43% will tell you they have both issues like problems initiating sleep, staying asleep. The issue is, as you've clearly pointed out there, that there's very different perceptions of what a good night's sleep is. And just to give you a few more statistics, reported insomnia does increase dramatically with age. From 18 to 34 year olds, it's about 14%. 35 to 49, it's only 15%. But once people go over 65, it's dramatic. It's 25% over 65s. That would lead us on maybe to have a look at what are the phases of sleep and what is a sleep cycle and how do those sleep cycles change as we get older? There's a natural change that occurs and maybe not to be too disappointed. Okay, talk me through that then because I'm definitely interested to hear about age because you're right definitely it seems to play a big part in the narrative that the older you get the more difficult sleep is to find I suppose so how does the sleep cycle actually work it there's essentially two phases there's a non-REM sleep and there's REM sleep the non-REM sleep is separated into N1 N2 and N3 N1 is very transient 15 minutes N2 is usually quite short as well and the N3 is what we call deep sleep or slow wave sleep. And it turns out that's a really fundamental physical requirement for physical well-being of the body and particularly well-being of the brain. And then the next phase is REM sleep. So for a healthy young person, what tends to happen is they'll have about five sleep cycles in the night. And early in the night, the N3 or the deep sleep is the most pronounced one and they'll get very little REM. And as the sleep cycles go on through the night, the REM becomes more pronounced. That's the time when we dream and our muscles are paralyzed during REM sleep. So there's actually very little difference in looking at the brain activity of somebody who's awake and going through REM sleep and if their muscles weren't paralyzed as an evolutionary mechanism we'd be acting out our dreams which would be very yeah very dangerous (laughs) but the other interesting thing from an endocrine or hormone point of view a lot of hormones are released during that first phase of deep sleep so that's why it's so critical and perhaps that's why the old phrase in Ireland was an hour before 12 was war two after. I would say the, the mechanism for that would be that growth hormone is released primarily during that deep phase, slow wave sleep. And if you miss your first cycle, so you're out late and enjoying yourself, which is essential to do. And I 
preface all this discussion with people should live their lives and not dwell on sleep too much that leads to it's almost like performance anxiety and to go back to the REM sleep then REM sleep is critically important for our cognitive function and for our psychological well-being and mental health that would appear to be the really important issue there and having good creativity better concentration during the day so the REM sleep is kind of therapy for the psychological well-being and the deep sleep is primarily for physical well-being this is a very mm. random question, which you may not mm. know the answer to, <laughs> but I was having the conversation with someone the other day about ability to remember dreams mm. or not. Yeah. Does that kind of relate to if you wake during that REM sleep period within the cycle? It's primarily where people doze off early in the morning. You tend to go back into REM sleep and then you're disturbed and you, you tend to have a better recollection of it. You'll often hear people saying older people don't need as much sleep. As people get older, they're more resilient to sleep deprivation. But it doesn't actually mean they don't require it. It's they're just less able to generate that slow wave sleep. What you tend to see as people get older is shorter periods of deep sleep. Essentially, the efficiency goes down. And along with that, the REM reduces and the deep sleep reduces. My children will ask me, why do I need to sleep? And you're kind of explaining to them that that is the time that... You process your day's learnings and your body helps to, to restore itself and, yeah. you know, heal itself and all the tissue muscles have a chance to, I suppose, recuperate during that time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And then and when you think of elderly people, they are the one group who actually probably need quality sleep more because the demands on their body are more absolutely. difficult. As a community pharmacist like yourself, doing my utmost to help my patients, I always like to get to the root cause. And it's obviously very difficult when people have different conditions and which one comes first and what leads to another. But sleep was coming up again and again, as I discussed it with people. And then when I read Matthew Walker's book, it became really clear and frightening, to be honest, as he outlined what the consequences of poor sleep were. Time to exhaustion after poor sleep is reduced. Aerobic capacity is reduced and ability to do cognitive things or concentrate or focus and, and learn new tasks is reduced. So from an evolutionary point of view, you'd imagine it's a very inefficient thing to spend almost a third of our lives lying down and not aware of our surroundings. But in fact, the more and more evidence that's out there is that a shorter amount of sleep on average leads to a shorter life. I mean, that's a profound statement, but the evidence is overwhelming. And even if you just look at some of the main conditions that we're treating in community pharmacy and primary health care, like diabetes, even after seven nights of taking young, healthy people and depriving them to about five hours sleep, their sugar levels are equal to someone who's pre-diabetic and their hormone levels are reduced. Men's testosterone levels are equivalent to somebody about 10 years older than them. You can also measure the female hormones are significantly reduced even after that short time period of sleep deprivation. Anyone who's familiar with physiology would know that there's a, a lymphatic drainage system in the human body that works like a, the opposite to the bloodstream and very slowly transports dead cells and proteins and things back around the body. Well, we, it's a relatively recent discovery that there's a lymphatic system in the brain, and this is activated primarily during that deep, slow wave sleep. And that's where the channels in the brain literally open up and the cerebral spinal fluid washes out all the proteins that shouldn't be there. And they're built up as a, as a kind of a byproduct of metabolism. And of course, the brain is, it uses 20% of our, our glucose. It's going through an immense amount of work. So the tau proteins and the beta amyloid proteins, which are markers for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, can be measured as elevated even after 
a short number of, of nights of sleep deprivation. So that's kind of like the causal mechanism. We already knew by association that people who suffered from poor sleep over many years, it was one of the main lifestyle risks of dementia or Alzheimer's, but we didn't really have a causality of it. And now we have some evidence to, to show that. So it can be a bit frightening as you read increased cardiovascular risk and the sugar metabolism, I suppose, which can lead to obesity and an inability to metabolize sugars properly. The liver doesn't function properly either. Normally the liver produces sugar from gluconeogenesis from fat, and that doesn't function properly either when someone doesn't have a good night's sleep. So then it's, it becomes a spiral where someone craves the wrong foods. They eat the wrong foods. They go for stimulants. People should understand that caffeine, while it's a very healthy thing to use in moderation, we should be aware that it takes quite a long time for caffeine to wash out of the system. It has an impact on our ability to sleep, quality of it and going to sleep. That's really interesting. I know I've been talking a lot about diabetes lately and obesity. And one thing that came up that I was kind of talking about in life at the moment, it's changed on how it was a few decades ago. So People are working more, so it's more common to have two working parents in a household oh. or two partners working and trying to juggle life commitments. Then obviously the financial burdens that people are facing with the housing crisis and the cost of living crisis, all of these things are maybe adding stress to people. Add to that then a decreased ability and time to maybe meal plan and shop smartly mm. and understand the diet that we're eating so like it's very easy to go in and just pick up something processed but obviously that brings its whole other realm of problems with the fat levels and the the macros that they contain yeah. um or don't and you know all of that and then add into the fact that people are so fatigued by living in this world that we find ourselves in now that they get in and in the end of the day and they need to find a way to de-stress. And OK, some people will do that in healthy ways by drinking chamomile tea, maybe or going for a walk. But with our climate and our daylight hours, that can be difficult. And it was certainly well reported that particularly during COVID, when stress levels were high, people were using things like alcohol to try and sedate them into some sort of sleep or relaxed, less anxious state. And I'm assuming all of that is very unhelpful for sleep as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. And it, it just leads me into two important points. There's, of course, there's genetic links to all these things and nobody's responsible for the whatever conditions they're suffering from. But we, we need to try and empower them to realize there are things they can do to help to tweak it. So like while a certain amount of caffeine has been shown to be healthy, it's important to note that caffeine has a five hour half life and our ability to metabolize caffeine actually reduces as we get older. I suppose a simple rule of thumb would be not to consume caffeine eight to 10 hours before you plan to go to bed. In an ideal world anyway, it's the caffeine metabolism. It's just going to delay sleep, but more importantly, it reduces sleep efficiency. I'm just going to say I'm sitting here drinking a coffee and it's half past four. <laughs> oh, I just, I just had one before we started, so... You know, okay, this is ideal world stuff. Ideal, <laughs> ideal world. Perhaps keep your caffeine to the earlier in the day, if possible. Sleep is governed by a couple of simple things. There is a, a chemical in the brain called adenosine, and as that builds up, our sleep pressure builds up. It does fluctuate, but caffeine blocks adenosine receptors. 
So when you have your first cup of coffee in the morning, it blocks the receptors. And then as the caffeine wears off, sometimes mid-afternoon, our circadian rhythm takes a natural dip. And it's very tempting to have another cup of coffee. A little trick actually is if you don't consume caffeine for about the first hour of the day, the denosine receptors kind of settle more in the morning. And then your first coffee, it, it won't have as much impact on your feeling of wakefulness as it wears off. But to go back to the alcohol issue, you know, there's been a lot of research peddled about over the years about a certain amount of alcohol, particular red wine, being good for you. That has been completely refuted in recent years. There's no amount of alcohol that's healthy for the body. From a sleep perspective, the sedation you get from alcohol is terrible. It particularly disrupts REM sleep. Now, if someone can stay in bed for long enough, their REM sleep will start to recover towards the end of the night as the sleep cycles come along. But alcohol reduces the amount of time of sleep and it reduces the efficiency to sleep. Okay, so just because you feel like you're having a great night's sleep after a few glasses of wine. What you're saying is the restorative quality of that sleep is not there. It's not there. Your, your ability to concentrate is obviously compromised the next day. Cardiac it's fake sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fake sleep. As, as a runner over the years, I can testify that when you track your heart rate while you're running after alcohol, it's just a rule of thumb, but you'll, you'll be putting in a lot more cardiac effort for a lot slower pace, that type of thing. Okay. Blood pressure goes up when people don't sleep enough. There's a lot of other issues, but just I think it's important to outline that alcohol is not a way to improve someone's sleep. Just to throw balance to that conversation, mm. and I know you already did there, but I think really what we're trying to say, alcohol is not the answer to your sleep issues. And obviously everything yeah. in moderation. Perhaps you could try and drink with your meal, maybe a little bit earlier in the night, give your body a chance to metabolize some of the alcohol. But it's not but. that quick win that you think it is. No. Yeah. Okay. You spoke about running and I don't want to bore people because I know we're both avid runners and we could go down a very slippery slope here. But for me, if I'm going through periods of poor sleep, it's generally because I'm not exercising or getting out. Even for me, I need to see the outside world. So I'm not a great treadmill runner. I prefer to be out and seeing the world around me. It makes me feel a little bit more grounded. Also, I don't think the dogs would appreciate the treadmill, but <laughs> you never know. I might try that out. So, you know, I, I definitely find that I get a great night's sleep after I have done physical exertion. And I think this is translatable to everyone because not everyone has to run. It could be, a, you know, a gentle walk or whatever you're able to. But is there an association between exercise and sleep and also the outdoors and sleep? The first question, either anaerobic or weight training improves sleep, as does aerobic exercise like running or walking. But you're hitting a really important point here that doing something outside helps our circadian rhythm to rebalance. Every cell in our body has a 24 hour clock, a circadian rhythm. They've done experiments on putting people living down in caves and there's quite a large percentage of the population like me, night owls, and their circadian rhythm is a little bit longer than 24 hours. Every day we need to learn a few tricks to try and reset our circadian rhythm for that day. And the easiest way to do that is exposure to daylight. So running outside in the morning or walking outside in the morning is a fantastic way to improve their circadian rhythm and our hormonal response. It was discovered a few years ago that there is a set of cells in the eye that have nothing to do with sight and they help to regulate the, the sleep-wake cycle. These cells are linked back to the thing called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is right behind the two optic nerves, where the two optic nerves crisscross. 
And if you like, it's the conductor of the circadian rhythm. So whenever someone gets out and gets light exposure, that sends a message then to the pileal gland, which is a small little gland in the back of the brain, to start producing melatonin about 12 hours later. So that's a really good way linking the body. And I think there's some interesting research being conducted at the moment about consequences of different parts of the body not being in sync and not following the circadian rhythm. So, for example, maybe cardiac health, where the heart is working on a different schedule. You touched on food being really important. I mean, if we eat very late at night, it can affect our sleep ability as well. The rule of thumb now is you reckon about three hours before bed is when you should have your last large meal. About 35% of insomnia cases, there is a psychiatric illness involved. So it'd be important for people to realize if they have a really big issue with sleep and insomnia, that they should consult their doctor because doctor will take that into account. And primarily that issue is depression and that should be addressed. But 15% then is where people start thinking too much about their sleep, putting themselves under pressure. And now we have the ability to measure our sleep cycles really easily with activity trackers. And as a fellow runner, I'm sure you have a, a tracker to, to look at your running and it will tell you how much sleep you got. There'll have to be a new area of study on this. That all this information we're tracking back consciously. How does that affect the brain's ability to, to regulate us? All this information isn't useful. Yeah, I um, take off my watch whenever I'm not running because... It just yeah. messes my head telling me to move. Too much data. I mean, there's a couple of other things there, like restless leg syndrome. There's about one in 10 people tell you they're terrible sleepers. And when you bring them into a sleep lab, they actually have no issue at all. It's just they're slightly more perceptive of the interruptions to their sleep. They just call that paradoxical insomnia. But the circadian rhythm in the literature is only attributed in about one in 10 cases. But I would venture to say that it's a lot more significant than that because the circadian rhythm is what we've evolutionarily designed to live. And, and modern life is taking us further and further away from that as we need to commute more, as we have more electronic devices that are part of our lives now. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I don't look at my phone late at night or check my emails last thing at night. But it, it's just to be aware of a few little tricks like you can Turn the blue light filter off in your phone. Blue light is known to disrupt melatonin release. You can delay it by about 90 minutes. And melatonin doesn't indicate quality of sleep, but it's, it's very important for getting to sleep, that nice sleepy feeling. And they should always say you shouldn't go to bed until you feel sleepy. Just on that, actually, obviously there is a seasonal variance in our morning light and at what time it arrives does that have yeah. a big impact absolutely like there's going to be naturally different amounts of average sleep during the winter time especially living in a place like ireland where we have such long days in the summer and, and short days in the winter and it, it is definitely worthwhile in getting blackout blinds to block out light especially if you're trying to get children to sleep longer or to sleep longer yourself that blue light as it comes in through the, the blinds or the curtains will will stimulate wakefulness and what about conversely then in the winter using, you know, you can get those, are they called sun lamp? Yeah. You know, white light for the morning exposure to that for 10 minutes. Is that helpful or is that? Yeah, it is definitely helpful. Even leaving the exercise out of it. I would encourage someone who's trying to make a change to their sleep-wake cycle to just have their morning tea or coffee outside. If it's sunny, 10 minutes is enough. If it's very cloudy, as it often is in Ireland, try and lengthen it out to 10 or 15 minutes. And just that kind of gazing off into the horizon, it sounds touchy-feely, but it has been shown to, to help to regulate that sleep-wake cycle. Obviously, then if someone becomes more energetic, they could maybe go for a walk around the block if they have the time. But in absence of the ability to do that, one of those lamps 
can help a person to wake up and feel better. And one other question about causes. At the moment, obviously, there's a lot of chat, which is great. It's very welcome that there's a lot more chat about things like the menopause. And pregnancy, obviously, is another time for women specifically where hormone levels fluctuate naturally. Are female hormones a big contributor to sleep issues or how do they impact sleep? I think one of the main ways they impact sleep is by core body temperature. So in order to facilitate sleep, your core temperature has to come down by about one degree centigrade. The hormones can have an impact on that core temperature. The ambient temperature in the room would need to be lower for the female than it would be for the male. So it might be that you need different type of duvet or something like that. There might be practical solutions. But certainly the hormonal thing, and particularly during the menopause, it seems to be a huge factor where the quality of the sleep dramatically reduces. And even during earlier stages, like during the perimenopause, where the lack of sleep itself could have a significant impact on the hormone production. Yeah. Yeah. The data is more clear cut when it comes to the male testosterone, but there's clearly a link there as well with female hormones. Yeah, that makes so much sense after what you said earlier about, you know, nighttime being a a time where your hormone production is controlled and hormones are obviously key to these phases in women's life. So it does make sense to link one with the other. You've already given some great tips on improving sleep. But before we move on to general sleep hygiene and just practical measures that people can use, there's two things really. So First of all, obviously you spoke about how mental health problems can be a contributor and that if persistent sleep problems are there or you think your sleep problems are very significant that you should see a doctor. But are there other occasions where people should see a doctor? And I suppose as a follow on to that, what is the role of sleeping tablets that people may then be prescribed or not? We've both seen and I'm sure our colleagues in farms who've seen quite a high incidence of sleeping tablet prescribing and despite the fact that it's no longer advised as first-line therapy. But with a health system that's clearly strained, it's difficult for prescribers to to have the time. Probably there's an absence of ability to refer people. I mean, the first-line treatment for insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy. Probably difficult to access for the percentage of people that are suffering from it. When you look at the meta-analysis or the review of the data on large-scale figures of people on sleeping tablets, the overall mortality rates or the risk of people dying when they're taking part in these studies correlates to how often they're using the sleeping tablets and compared to non-users, their health risks is poor. And I'm sure there could be other factors involved there, but in essence, the sedation that people experience from sleeping tablets doesn't appear to be improving their general health, physical or mental. Okay. So while they might have a place short term when people are undergoing severe stress, a prescriber might feel it's necessary we really should be exploring all other avenues before they're given to a patient long term. Find the root cause. Yeah, ideally. We've spoken about the first 10 minutes of the day and it's worth setting your clock that little bit earlier. Stress is a really important thing to bring into this. If someone is under physical stress, like working physically very hard or there's a lot of demands on their cognitive abilities, whether it be through the day to day, looking after the family and through workplace and all the different challenges people experience now and commuting and whatnot that perhaps our ancestors didn't have to deal with. Just to build in little periods of rest into the day as well to facilitate stress reduction, trying to help feel more relaxed when we're going to bed. I know earlier you said 25% of people, I think it was, feel that they need a nap. I try and avoid naps purely because I feel like it mostly would negatively impact my ability to fall asleep then later on and I end up staying up way too late. In general, are naps a good idea for people? Generally, they're not advised, particularly for people that consider themselves to suffer from insomnia. 
But they do have a place, and I don't think they should be discounted. If if someone is going to nap, the ideal time would probably be between one and three, depending on their lifestyle. And ideally for something between 30 and 45 minutes. If you kind of start going into a full sleep cycle of one and a half hours, I think the ability to sleep that night is severely impaired. And it can be hard to imagine fitting that into a working day. I actually have a girl who works for me and she's amazing on her lunch hour. She's like, don't talk to me. So she'll eat for a half an hour and then she'll sit in the chair, which, you know, I mean, it's a fine chair for eating your lunch in, but she literally put the head down, earphones in and off she goes. And I'm just like, that's, that's amazing. That's a, a great skill. I'm envious. Yeah. yeah. To be able to relax that much and have that ability. Essentially, you try and convince people to go to sleep when they're sleepy and, and, and try not to lie awake in bed for long periods of time. The next day, if we have a bad night's sleep, there is a tendency to mentally punish yourself or tell yourself that, well, now you're not going to be able to do this and you're not going to be able to do that because you didn't have a good night's sleep. And why didn't you have a good night's sleep? Now you're not going to be able to concentrate. Whereas in reality, that's not true because you've probably had enough quality sleep over the last few nights. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Say from having run over 10 marathons, I can say that like coming up to the marathon, no matter how you try and convince yourself usually the nerves will get to you the night before and you'll have a very poor night's sleep but the ability is there you can still go out and physically run it doesn't seem to have much impact on it it's very slight perhaps it's good to have confidence in our in our body's ability to adapt there's a couple of other interesting mechanisms like we don't our immune system isn't quite as effective after a poor night's sleep and things like that but again best not to focus on these things easier said than done so take all this knowledge in and then forget it and don't (laughs) don't focus on it whatever you do I bring you on for the great topic. Tell us everything and now we need to forget it. (laughs) But uh, actually, I think it's all really reassuring because in essence, what we're saying is that our bodies are much more abreast to adapting and to surviving. And then, as you said, compensating over maybe following nights in ways that we won't even see. And to have faith in that process and allow that to remove the stress and anxiety associated with sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Just trust in ourselves and on our abilities to do it. And I know there can be very challenging times after particularly poor night's sleep. I personally think the nap is a great device there, you know, to time it and turn off your phone and no interruptions. And even if you don't sleep, that relaxation period is going to have a significant benefit. There are some supplements like magnesium, which can help. We're seeing a lot more prescriptions for melatonin, which can have a place in helping to to shift the sleep cycle to a, a healthier rhythm, healthy circadian rhythm. But of course, all these things should you should consult with your with your doctor before taking them. So in the meanwhile, set yourself up for success and absolutely all of the things that will help promote a good night's sleep will actually help with an awful lot of other health factors. Absolutely. You know, watch your sugar intake just before bed. It's going to activate your frontal cortex, activate your brain. You start thinking about things too much. And the screen time can be a double whammy because it activates your cognitive thinking and it also delays the melatonin release. So absolutely set yourself up for success. You know, the more modern homes can be too warm for sleeping. So the optimal temperature seems to be about 18 degrees for a bedroom. It's okay to be wrapped up, but the the room itself shouldn't be higher than that. We should be turning down our lights, get some lamps, don't have particularly LEDs, have blue light. We shouldn't be using those late at night. 
It's just trying to wind down, try not to exercise just before bed either because that increases core temperature and then it's difficult to get the core temperature down sufficiently to get to sleep. Without going to see a professional about cognitive behavioral therapy, there's some interesting resources online, podcasts and things like that. Yeah, any suggestions? And there's a particularly good one called the Sleep School in London. The main professor there is just convincing people to have confidence in their ability to sleep. We can all influence our meal times. Small changes, but significant. And a lot of these changes are things that we don't want to hear, to be perfectly honest. Like we want a magic fix. I don't want to hear that I have to stick to a regular sleep pattern, be sensible with my coffee intake, do some exercise. Like Uh, these are in essence things that we should all know, but it's not the reality that you remember to put them into practice. Yeah, I think that's key. A lot of these things are advice your grandmother it's yeah. probably given you, you know, and it, depending on your mindset, like I like to see data to convince me of something that is already common sense. And I know all these things I'm mentioning are very obvious, but there's a good body of data to back them up now. And I see that happening more and more in medicine. We're going to see the importance. Of, well, you don't even have to call it exercise, the importance of movement. You know, a generation ago, we, everyone had to wash their clothes, wash their dishes, hang them out on a line, all these different tasks that were part of the daily routine that are now no longer necessary. They yeah. walked everywhere, cycled everywhere. It's just to introduce a bit of balance back into our lives. And these things are worth prioritizing. Because it's like we've over commercialized, strip it all back to where our grandparents were. And yeah, that'd be great life. advice from, from a food perspective. Don't eat anything your grandparents couldn't eat. If it yeah. wasn't available to them, do not eat it. It's very confusing when you see all the different types of diets that are out there and the overwhelming data, particularly when it comes to sugar levels and diabetes, all these different illnesses that are becoming more and more part of the discussion and all the inflammatory illnesses that are out there, all these things are made worse by our sugar levels. And the fact that the body is either in one phase or the other, we're either storing energy or we're in a repair phase and using that energy. And even if there's any amount of sugar in your system, that repair phase can't start. One of those buzzwords at the moment is intermittent fasting. And huge. Yeah. So intermittent fasting in terms of just restricting your food hours to an eight hour period during the day, ideally starting early and finishing early. That is beneficial to sleep. Absolutely. There's a secondary benefit to the sleep and there's a, there's a relationship there between sugar levels and getting the proper hormone releases of growth hormone and the other hormones secondary to that that are triggered by that. So all that process, essentially your body goes into repair phase when we ena- enable it. As I always say to people, you wouldn't fix a highway with cars going up and down the road. I mean, your gut replaces itself every nine to 10 days. We're at a crossroads where we either to continue to allow ourselves to be influenced and dictated to by commercial organizations that have one agenda, which is sale of their product, or we choose to go back to basics and follow a natural path and try and bring ourselves back to, I suppose, original humanity for (laughs) want of a better phrase. And that's why I keep mentioning the the circadian rhythm. And of course, there's different genetic differences in how much sleep people need. And some people prefer to sleep early in the day, some late. And in some parts of the world where the, the siesta is still a common thing, health outcomes seem to be superior than ours, for example, even with no obvious improvement in, in lifestyle issues. So 
it's just good to be aware if you do try and measure what are you measuring and we should be looking when it comes to food and exercise and sleep and all these things it's quality not quantity too a short effective sleep could be just as good as a, a longer disrupted sleep keep it simple absolutely Thank you so much for explaining all of that and to going into so much detail because you really are a complete wealth of knowledge on the topic. And I would implore anyone in the Wexford area to hop into Haven Pharmacy Murphy's in Clannard to tap into some of this genius because... Oh, thanks very much. You're too kind. No, it's you're, you know, an asset to your community. And it's it's hard to, I suppose, strip the nonsense from the fact. And it's been really great to have the opportunity to do that today. And hopefully this discussion will make it a bit easier for people to understand the overall issues involved. If we can reduce a little bit of that anxiety around sleep and just realize that, you know what, even if you feel like you're awake a lot, perhaps you're not as awake as much as you think. And this is why this podcast is great, because community pharmacists are experts over a whole wide range of areas. Communication time can be restrained because of the nature of the setting. We are impassioned and very passionate about reaching out and supporting our communities. And this allows us time to do it, which is fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much, Lena. Thank you.